This is Barry Zalma, Zalma on Insurance. I am an attorney who has retired from the active practice of law and now spend my time as an insurance claims consultant, an insurance claims expert witness, an author and producer of these videos. Today I'd like to talk about something that is important to all claims investigators, all lawyers involved in claims or in any aspect of litigation, and that is the mutability of memory. Every investigator or lawyer preparing a case for trial must understand how memory influences the information obtained. Very few people have an eidetic or photographic memory. Memory is fluid and often unreliable as a function of operations of a human being. During the time I spent as a trainee investigator at the Army Intelligence School at Fort Holabird, Maryland back in 1964, a classroom lecture on interviewing was interrupted by a man dressed in a clown mask, a tuxedo, swim fins, a cowboy hat, and a purple cummerbund. He ran into the room, screamed epithets, fired a weapon into the ceiling, and ran out. The teacher instructed each member of the class to write down a description of the intruder. None of our descriptions were accurate, and we were all shocked when the shooter was brought back into the class. The noise he made, the firing of a weapon, and the fear the incident engendered made it almost impossible to recall him accurately. Some even described him as having been female. The professional recognizes that some interview techniques can cause honest subjects, those who are innocent but just might be trying to be helpful, to misremember and provide unreliable, even false information. It has long been known that false memories can be implanted by a process of suggestion especially when used by skillful but unscrupulous interviewers or attorneys. Leading questions where desired answer is suggested by the question are a dangerous impediment to fact-finding. The true professional, impartial and seeking only the truth, must guard against even inadvertently leading a subject to create false memories. Evidence has shown that the use of a suggestive interview technique can be material to the preparation of defense, and the courts have recognized that suggestive interview techniques are material to the credibility of prosecution witnesses. For example, in United States versus Noel, a Seventh Circuit case in 2009 denies the problem. In another example, a police officer who lies to a suspect may, however, find the results of the interview 
accepted as, quote, following from a reasonable interrogation technique, close quote, in versus Hatcher, a year 2000 Ohio Court of Appeal decision, the court was faced with an officer who explained his interview technique this way. Quote, well, if you have certain facts that you believe that a suspect has committed, say, they've done one thing, if you make it seem like the accuser is making it more than it is easier for the person to say, oh, no, I didn't do that, but all I did was this, it's just a technique we're trained to do. The court concluded, thus, regardless of the court's view of the use of lies by detectives as an interview technique during the course of questioning a defendant, we cannot find that this factor alone supports a finding that the confession was involuntary. However, in a subsequent dissent, the court's decision was criticized. Quote, we simply should not sanction this technique. The jury which heard the case was rightly concerned about the police conduct in this case. This technique is within the purview of our deliberation as an appellate court. Indeed, most courts, including many cited by the majority, have consistently disapproved of this technique as producing untrustworthy statements. Significantly, this court unequivocally did so in State v. Johnston in 1990, which case the majority references but fails to apply. We should clearly and consistently express ourselves about the technique and refuse to reward its use. Since the majority did not take this step, I respectfully dissent, close quote. There is a long-held psychology story about a man by the name of Piaget and implanted memories. In psychotherapeutic set settings, when hypnotized subjects are regressed to a past life, and are given suggestions that they were abused in their past life. Many subsequently remember the suggested abuse and regard it thereafter as a fact. This phenomenon is not limited, however, to the context of hypnosis. One of the best-known examples of a false memory is found in the autobiography of developmental psychologist Jean Piaget. Dr. Piaget wrote that a kidnapping had been attempted on him when he was only two years old. He remembered copious details concerning the incident. Years later, however, the nurse who had reported the kidnapping attempt admitted that she made the entire story up to avoid being fired and to gain the good graces, even the gratitude of the Piaget family. As a child, Dr. Piaget had heard the story repeated so many times that he could not differentiate between his own memories and the false imparted narratives that overtook his recollection. He would describe with utter conviction the assailants, 
the clothes he was wearing, how he was pulled by the kidnappers from his carriage, and the pain he experienced. He recalled all these details as if they were real memories. And being the memories of an educated and rational man, a professional psychologist, in fact, they remained unquestionably true, but they were proven to be entirely false. The professional, no matter how experienced, should resist the temptation to believe he or she is a human lie detector. False memories are too easy to implant, and in their vivid imagery and wealth of detail, they can be indistinguishable from true recollections. Indeed, these memories are experienced as entirely real by those who possess them, and even after their unreliability has been exposed, they function to mask or have perhaps entirely replaced any original or true memory. The professional recognizes that any method of lie detection, including his or her own techniques, requires complete corroboration. Sincerity is what makes the self-deceived deceiver so convincing. The name for this phenomenon is false memory syndrome. The belief that it is possible for one to remember in great detail events, especially traumatic ones, that did not actually occur. Some people believe that the memory is like a computer hard drive that records every event accurately and keeps it intact. Research on memory has debunked that myth and raised many questions about remembering and forgetting memories that are malleable. They change incrementally each time we recall past events. With the passage of time, with direction or motivation, with the introduction of interfering facts, memory is inexorably transformed. When conducting an interview, the professional must be careful not to provide the subject with a trigger that will unconsciously transform his or her memory of an event to fit the interviewer's needs. Much remains to be learned about human memory, especially how both traumatic and non-traumatic memories are preserved. It has been shown that some of our memories can become unavailable to us. Furthermore, when such memories are seemingly rediscovered or uncovered, they can often be shown to be contaminated mixtures of both accurate and inaccurate information. Because of the reconstructive nature of memory, some memories may be distorted through influences such as the incorporation of new information a factor which the professional must always take into consideration. The problem of tainted memory is much more evident in young children. The risk with young children is that they may be unable to distinguish between a memory of something that actually happened and a memory of something they only imagined happening. If an interview technique leads a child to imagine an event, 
the child's memory of that imaginative event, an implanted memory, will be just as real to the child as memories of events he or she actually experienced. The Arizona Supreme Court noted that repressed memories of childhood abuse can exist and that they can be triggered and recovered. It also concluded that other equally real-seeming memories can be inaccurate, may be implanted, and may be attributable to poorly trained therapists or the use of improper therapeutic techniques. The court found that it is therefore impossible to say with any accuracy which memories are real and which are implanted. Moreover, it concluded that juries must decide on a case-by-case -case basis whether either repressed memory recovery or false memory syndrome is at play. Some investigators use the same technique to in obtain information that conforms to their own prejudices. For example, an experienced social worker can implant child abuse simply by the way the questions are asked. There is also a condition known as confabulation. Some people, although not actually cunning, intentional liars, are simply unable to tell the truth. The condition known as confabulation is a memory disturbance characterized by verbal statements inaccurately representing memory background or present situations. Confabulation is considered honest lying and is distinct from deliberate lying because there is typically no intent to deceive. The individual is unaware that their information is false. Individuals who confabulate are generally very confident about their recollections, despite evidence contradicting its truthfulness. The best known causes of confabulation are traumatic and acquired brain damage like an aneurysm or an edema, and psychiatric or psychological disorders like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or dementia. The professional interviewer must hone his or her ability to recognize a confabulator, a person who, clinically speaking, cannot tell the truth, because the confabulator, judging by tests and all other indications, appears to be a truthful person. Usually, confabulation does not benefit the subject, he or she is motivated by nothing other than the desire to relate his or her thoughts and experiences. Confabulations, although not true, are not lies. They are the product of a psychological problem that must be understood by the interviewer before drawing any conclusions about the degree of truthfulness in the subject's responses. This video was adapted from my book, Zelma on Insurance Claims, Part 108, Second Edition, which is available as part of the 10-volume Zelma on Insurance Claims and can be acquired from Amazon.com as both 
a Kindle book or as a paperback, and also through my website, Zalma on zalma.com by clicking on the link to the insurance claims library. If you found this video to be useful, please advise your colleagues, sign up and subscribe to my blog so that you can be advised of future videos, which I tend to publish on a daily basis. And thank you again for your attention.